Well, hello everyone. Good evening. Welcome. Ah, well, it's great to have you back for week two. How many of you guys here for the first time? Just raise your hand real quick if you don't mind. Okay, well, welcome. It's great to have you here. Um, how many of you were here last week? Okay, that's great. How many of you not here this week that were here last week? Okay, yeah. Some people have raised their hands on that. So, um, anyway, uh, for those of you uh, who are here for the first time, welcome. Um, welcome those of you who are visiting with us live stream. I, would know, I know Jeff and Kelly are watching from Manhattan. So Jeff and Kelly, thank you. They couldn't be here tonight, but they're in New York at a wedding. I understand that there's a gal by the name of Rachel Oden who is watching from Germany. So Rachel, uh, hi, welcome. They're clapping for you. Uh, I don't know if you speak English or not, but uh, I hope you do. I, this is not being translated into German. I, uh, so anyway, uh, uh, hey, real quick, before we get started tonight, I wanted to tell you about um, how, many, how many married couples here tonight? If I may just go ahead and just really get in this. Okay. Okay. So now you're on the hook. Um, so at... We do this course at Lakeview called the Marriage Course. It's called, it, and we, and we, it's called Cherish, and it's a workshop, and it's really a date night for husbands and wives. And that starts this Thursday night. So if you've got any interest in attending this course, it starts with dinner at 6.15, it's, and it's kind of a workshop where you just kind of do some exercises between couples. And Annette, my wife, whom you met last week if you were here, and I have the have the joy of facilitating that. So if you've got any interest, it's a six-week course. Uh, we would love for you to be a part of it. We've got a few openings left. So if you'd like to come, or even if you wouldn't like to come, but your wife wants you to come, uh, it's a good idea to do that. So, uh, so anyway, would love for you to join us. The Cherish course starts Thursday night here. You can just call the church, or you can go to lakeviewchristiancenter.com and register. So uh, if you want to do that, that would be great. Um, Carrie, I know you're not here tonight because you have a sick child, but we miss you and we hope to see you back next week as well. So um, anybody else I'm missing that's watching that, you know, what? should I say hello to any of your other friends? No? Okay. So anyway, well, let's get started into this evening. Um, Quick review for those of you who were not with us last week. We really spent a lot of our discussion time around the issue of faith. And that faith is not exclusively a religious term. We like to use the word faith when we think about religion. But faith is something we exercise all the time. We get in our car. We get in an airplane. We go under anesthesia. Um, we, any, any numbers of things that we do. We, we live in Orleans Parish. These are things that we, we do by, by faith. Um, so... Um, so, but I, I mean, do you remember when you were a kid? I mean, we believed a lot of things when we were kids, didn't we? I mean, do you remember some things you believed? Here's a couple of things that we believed as when we were kids. How about this? If you swallow watermelon seeds, an entire watermelon will grow inside you. Do you remember that? Remember that? And then you see a pregnant woman as a kid and you thought, <laughs> see, I told you that was true. So <laughs> um, here's another one. Uh, if you touch a toad, you get warts. Right? I mean, we remember this. Did... <laughs> um, 
stepping on a crack could literally break your mother's back, right? We all had these moments and I just had these friends of mine that would constantly stomp on cracks in the concrete, just mean children. Um, uh, Here's another one. If you urinate in a pool, there's a special dye that turns it bright red so that everyone will know. Did anyone? That's not true, Andy. No, but... So you've, what you're saying is you've never peed in a pool. Okay. Never? Okay. I don't believe that for a minute. There's not a human being on the planet that is not, you know, just... Right? <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. One last piece of nonsense. Okay. So... Um, if you swallow gum, it'll stay in your body for seven years. I still believe that. I, I, I thought that was true, but it's, it's not true. So anyway, so there's a lot of... What does that have to do with anything? So there's a lot of things that we just kind of believed as kids. And when we believe them, yeah, big deal. But we hold a lot of faith positions as grown-ups, as adults, that that position is... It, it's important that that position... That faith position is a solid, rational faith position. And it kind of brings us to, you know, where, where we are tonight. You know, there's a lot of people that, you know, it, tonight on the planet, 150,000 people, 150,000 people woke up this morning on average on the planet every day, wake up that do not make it to the end of the day. They do not make it back to their pillow. There are 150,000 people on the earth, 7,700 in the United States, and we live by faith. Now, the question is, I mean, if, if we're only concerned, and I brought a, a much more manageable dash and line tonight. So here's the dash, this is my ruler, um, and here's the line. But if we spend all of our time just thinking about things that don't last a very long time, we may be wise for a moment, but foolish forever, if what the Bible says is true. And if Jesus is who he says he is. And so that's our topic tonight. Who is Jesus? I think Americans would think, well, who doesn't know who Jesus is? I mean, come on, really? Well, let me tell you, I didn't know who Jesus was. I believed in a fictitious character named Jesus that I had just basically made up to appease my own personal stereotyping conveniency. But something happened to me as a sophomore at, at LSU where I went from believing certain things about Jesus that were not true to surrendering, literally surrendering my life to him and saying, you want it, you got it. That was 46 years ago. And my life changed completely and it continues to change completely. Now, I'm not asking you, I'm just telling you about my experience one of the things that I've said over, and I will say multiple times over the, the evenings that we have together, do not believe a word I am telling you. Don't. Check it out for yourself. Okay? What Alpha, as I told you, is not, is this is not a way to, an effort to indoctrinate you into what we believe. Uh, since last week, so many of you did not raise your hand when I asked the question, how many of you grew up reading, just being comfortable with the Bible all the time? I think there were four or five hands that went up. And so, um, and so if nothing else comes from this course for you, wherever you may be in your faith journey, at least 
you're going to have an opportunity to open a Bible and at least know what it says and doesn't say. And I think that'll be great. So, but it was 46 years ago. My life changed. And, but it was really after that, after I, that night in prayer, just said, God, if you want me, I'm, I'm, I'm yours. And I woke up the next morning, and I can't explain it to you, just different. You know, I wanted to go to class all of a sudden. Um, uh, I, I, you know, I, I, I needed to have a Bible. I never had a Bible. I didn't know what a Bible was, literally, till I went to college. Um, and so, uh, but it was there that I really began to, to begin to say, wait, is there any really, any evidence to support what I believe? Is, is it rational to believe what I believe? Have I just had some emotional experience? Is there any undergirding to this faith that I now sense that I I have. And so again, that's where we are tonight. It, was it reasonable to consider faith in the person and claims of a guy named Jesus that lived 2,000 years ago? What's the evidence? And so that's where we'll be tonight. So in page, on page 12 of your, your little study guide there, little alpha manual, um, we're going to just spend a little bit of time in that. I'll be in that and I'll be out of that. So if you're trying to follow me, uh, you're not going to succeed because I'm not necessarily following the, the thing myself. So, um, but here's the thing. He, you see, it says he existed. Now, there is no critically thinking, rational, unbiased historian who believes that there was never a person, Jesus, the Jesus that we see in the Bible. No, there's, there's, there's no one that believes that that is a fable. Every historian that is unbiased and has done their homework, his or her homework, recognizes that. And we have many accounts of that, not just in, not just in the Bible, but there are many, numerous extra-biblical accounts of person by the name of Jesus. And we have many historical figures um, that some of you would be aware of, depending upon how into ancient history you are. But Roman historians like a Jewish Roman historian, Josephus, uh, Suetonius, Pliny, uh, multiple other disciples of Jesus through the years, writing outside the pages of scripture. Uh, probably the most uh, famous Roman historian was a guy by the name of Cornelius Tacitus, and uh, this is what Tacitus said, and I, I got to believe I'm related to this guy, because when I look at that nose, um, and I look at this nose, it's just, so maybe we are related. So, but he's, this, is what, this is what Tacitus said, he said, consequently, to get rid of the report, now he's writing about the burning of Rome, okay, and so what he's saying here, what he's writing is, consequently, to get rid of the report that Nero had burned Rome, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius, in scripture, at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. So here's a guy that is not a proponent of the Christian faith at all that helps us know that historically there was a guy by the name of Jesus who led a band of Jewish folks. Now, 
This is just one of the multitude of this. Again, what, you know, Alpha is an introduction, and we can dig a lot deeper. But the, here, there are some evidences that we have. But the question is, what? Okay, so all right, so we have historical figure. But what about the Bible? I mean, how? Why should we believe the Bible? Um, hasn't it? Do do we know that what was written then is what we have today? Uh, how did it survive through two millennia to where what we're reading is what was? written. Can, can we believe that? Should we believe that? Well, it's fascinating the amount of history that we do have to support that. Now, what, what I'd like you to do, if you just turn, uh, maybe turn to page, uh, um, what is that page number without my glasses on? 13. Turn to page 13 or 12 here. Um, I'd like you to take your pen, if you would, and just, if you'd like to, just write down some stuff here. There's a science uh, called textual criticism. Textual criticism is basically research that is done to critically examine the veracity of ancient manuscripts. Okay, a manuscript, manu, you know, manuscript, handwritten, manuscript, handwritten. So handwritten documents before, you know, Gutenberg's press or anything such as that. Now, within the science of textual criticism, um, there is a particular test that is of particular importance. And it's called the bibliographical test. So if you would just want to write that down, bibli bibliographical test, that's fine. But the bibliographical test has three parts to it, all right? One, the quantity of the manuscripts. Okay, so when they're looking at an ancient document, how, how many copies of this document, this handwritten document, do we actually have? Okay, so that's one of the tests, the quantity of manuscripts. The other is the quality of manuscripts. Now, the quality doesn't mean how pretty it is or how well-preserved it is necessarily, but it's the consistency. All right, does, does the first document measure up to the second document, measure up to the third document? What are they all saying when you put these documents together? Are they contradicting one another? Do they seem to have the same uh, means and, and uh, mode of writing? Um, are, are they, are, does, is there anything about them that makes me believe that this, say, this author that wrote this, the documents that we have, are what he wrote? Because we don't have any of the original autographs. They're all since dust. So how many manuscripts exist? And what is their consistency? And then the third one is the time span. How, between the original author writing what he wrote and the first copy that we see, how many copies do we have? All right, so how many, how consistent are they or do they conflict? And then the time span, the time span between the original autograph and the manuscripts and its history, really, that speaks so loudly about Christianity. So I want us to do this. You see some of this in your, in your book. I'm just going to bring up a couple of these. So Herodotus was a Greek historian. Okay, he, he wrote of the Greco-Persian Wars between 488 and 428. The earliest copy we have is 900 AD. The time lapse is 1300 years. So between the time he wrote it and the first copy, the copies that we have is 1300 years time span between them. And we have existing manuscripts. We have 117 of those, right? So, so we, this, is how, this is how it works. But nobody seems to have a problem with Herodotus. Now, let's look at Thucydides. He wrote about the Peloponnesian Wars. 
Okay, between 460 and 400. Earliest copy, 900. Time lapse, 1,350 years. We have 104 copies of those. Right? Uh, Livy, another Roman historian. He wrote the history of Rome between these dates, 59 and AD 17. Uh, earliest copy, AD 400. Time lapse, 400. And we have an extant manuscript. We have 169 of those. That's good. That's good. Um, these, these are the way in which ancient literate, literature researchers look and see, yeah, I think we can put this in the textbooks. Then there's Homer. We remember Homer. Uh, my grandkids, again, they do this to me every time. This Homer. Okay. Uh, Greek poet. Uh, Wrote the Trojan Wars, the Iliad. Remember that? We had to read the Iliad and the Odyssey. The cliff notes were great. I love the cliff notes. Um, written 800 BC, earliest copy, 400. Time lapse, 400 years. We have 1,757. Now, that's been updated from what you may see in your book. So they've recently had a treasure trove of finding copies of the Iliad. So this is, this is the greatest number of manuscripts existing for an ancient uh, historian, uh, except for one. It's this thing called the New Testament. Um, it is the testimony of Jesus Christ in the history of the church. It was written between AD 40 and 100. The earliest manuscripts, we have partial manuscripts at 130, AD 350 for full manuscripts, time lapse of 40 years we have almost 24,000 copies of the New Testament. And the accuracy is at 99.5%. Now, that doesn't mean the Bible is God-breathed. But it does mean, just in terms of history, there is not a more consistent, accurate number of copies closest to the original document written in the history of mankind than the New Testament that proclaims Jesus Christ. So again, just on the basis of history, I think it deserves a listen. It was F.F. F. Bruce who was a professor of New Testament studies at the University of Manchester. This is what Bruce wrote. He says, and it was not friendly witnesses that the early preachers, in other words, the first century, the first church, had to reckon with. There were others less disposed who were also conversant with the facts of the ministry and the death of Jesus. The disciples could not afford to risk inaccuracies, not to speak willful manipulations of the facts, which would at once be exposed by those who would be only too glad to do so. On the contrary, one of the strong points in the original apostolic preaching is the confident appeal to the knowledge of the hearers. They not only said, we are witnesses of these things, but also as you yourselves know. Had the tendency been to depart from the facts in any material respect, the possible pressure of hostile witnesses in the audience would have served as a further corrective. In other words, the copies were already in circulation while people were still alive, and it made it very easy for people to rise up and say, that didn't happen. That's nonsense. But it didn't happen. 
And the church began to grow and grow and grow and followers of Christ exploded just over the first century. And so historically we have a reliable document. But um, let's just look a little bit more into this, page 14, uh, and we can just see uh, what the Bible declares about Jesus. The Bible says that he was fully human, uh, that he got tired. He got hungry. He, he experienced anger, love, sadness, compassion. Um, he had human experiences like we do. That he was tempted. He learned. He worked. He was obedient. See, all of these things, he had human experiences, human emotions, a human body. But, but in here, here's the real question. Was he more than just a man? Was he more than just a great human? Was he more than just a prophet? What did he have to say about himself? What did he record about himself? And I want us to just take a look at a few of these and one I've added to your notes. Now, I, I brought you this scripture last week, but I want to touch on it again. And, and I have underscored these. These are not underscored in the scripture, but I underscore them so that you and I will see something that's, I think, very important. He doesn't say denominations are the bread of life. He doesn't say going to church and keeping the rules are the bread of life. He doesn't say any of that. He makes it very pointed as to where life is found. Now, this may be completely true, completely false, but this is what he's saying. He's saying, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me he doesn't say he who goes to church, obviously I'm not opposed to church, shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, I want you, you see that scripture there in your book. I want you to just, if you've got room, just right next to that. He claims to be able to fill our emptiness. To fill that sense of void in our lives. That's the claim that he makes. Maybe true. It may be false, but that's the claim that is recorded over and over again consistently. Here's another scripture from the Gospel of John. So this is, when you see this here, this is the Gospel of John. John is the fourth gospel in the New Testament. When you see that number eight there, that is the eighth chapter. And the colon and the, tw the 12 there, that is the 12th verse. Now, the original scriptures were not given to us that way. As scriptures, as we went through history to help find particular scriptures, what happened was that, that historians and biblical uh, historians and biblical teachers would just add that to help us find where is that? Oh, that's John eight twelve. Jesus said again, "I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have." The light of life. That's a pretty provocative statement, don't you think? Somebody says he's the bread of life. If you eat of me, you'll never hunger or thirst. He is saying he is the light of the world. If you follow me, you're not going to walk in darkness. You will have the light of life. Now, I just want you to just consider that. And just right here, he says he claims to give my life, your life, direction and purpose. That's the claim that he makes. Another one quickly. Now, this one is not, I don't think this one is in, in, your, uh, in your book, but I couldn't, I, 
Yeah, it is. I'm sorry. It is in there. Matthew chapter 11, the first gospel in the, recorded in the New Testament, in the New Testament is Matthew 11. Matthew, and it's 11.28. Jesus says, again, it's, I, I underline these for a reason. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Now, when he's talking about a yoke here, just so you know, he's talking about an oxen yoke. Okay, they would put a yoke onto oxen, to oxen, that then they would go forward with those. And so that's the yoke that he's talking about. He says, take my yoke and learn of me, for I am gentle. My yoke is gentle and humble, and I'm humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now, don't you think there's some pretty amazing statements that he has made about himself? Not a movement, as I said, not a particular denomination. He said, he always said he was. What does this tell us that this is true? He is saying that he is the one that brings peace and brings belonging. And in coming to him, you will never be alone. In trusting in him, he will ever be with you. Again, a very powerful statement. If true, there couldn't be better news. And then this last one from the Gospel of John, the 11th chapter. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And he who believes in me shall never die. Hmm. What he's saying is this. Here's our, here's our dash. Okay, here's the dash. Life, short life. Here's the line that lasts forever. He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall, what does it say? Live even if he dies. We're all going to die. And he who believes in me shall never die. What he's saying here is there's on the other side of your last heartbeat, you're just going to put off your earth suit and you will continue to live. That's the statement that he's making. Your soul and your spirit will continue. I'm the resurrection. If you want to know what happens on the other side of your last heartbeat, I'm the resurrection. I'm the life. You believe in me? You're going to live, live even if you die. And if you believe in me, you shall never die. And then Jesus adds this to make it very personal to every one of us in this room. Do you believe this? He goes from, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Everyone, he's talking to Martha here. Martha's brother Lazarus has just died. And she is ticked that Jesus was not there. If you'd have been here, my, my, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus says, Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And he who believes in me shall never die. She goes from... He goes from everyone, everyone, to do you believe this? See, that's the thing about Jesus, about the God of the Bible. Though he may broadcast the truth to myriads, he's only speaking to you. 
And that's what I think I had lost in this mass of religion, that God actually cared about whether or not I believed. So as we look here, too, we can see that Jesus' teaching... Oh, let me... Never got it. Forgive me. So this is what he's saying here. Eternally secure with God. In believing in him... We're going to talk much more about this, what this word believes in. Eternally secure. What this word believe means. Eternally secure with God. Now, it's interesting when you look at this. If you look at all the religions of the world, not saying the religions of the world are false and Christianity is true, though obviously I believe Christianity is true. Um, If you remove any of the teachers of other religions, whether it's Krishna or Muhammad or Buddha or Confucius, any of them, if you remove them from their teaching, their religion stands intact because they were teaching different ways of getting to their particular gods or in the case of Buddhism, which is basically atheistic, how you get to that point of reincarnation to where you become one with the nothingness of the universe. Doesn't that sound exciting? Um, so, so, So you can remove them and their faith stands solid. That would not be true of biblical Christianity. It is a major difference between the world religions. Next week I'm going to give a comparative religion class to us in five minutes. Um, It would not be true of Christianity because other religions are about how good you have to be. Jesus already takes into account none of us is good. We're going to really touch on that next week. None of us is good enough. The faith of Christianity rests upon the person of Jesus Christ. And what he has done in every other religion, now think about this, if it's, if it's a religion where it is incumbent upon you or me to be good enough, well, that would be the antithesis of what the Bible teaches about Christianity. Christianity is about the fact that God says, because you aren't good enough, I sent my son to care for you, to come and rescue you. That may be true or false, but it's a clear delineation between what every other faith teaches and what the Bible teaches about Jesus Christ. Now, he made a couple of claims here, and I'm going to let you guys do this with these at your table uh, a little bit more. But Jesus made indirect claims about his being God incarnate, and he made direct claims. And two of those that you may or may not go through at your table tonight, one is out of the Gospel of Mark. Mark is the second gospel recorded in the New Testament where Jesus is, is in someone's home and he, and he basically heals a man, but before he heals him, he, t- he tells them that his sins are forgiven. Well, some of the religious leaders were around at that time and they didn't like the fact that Jesus is saying your sins are forgiven because who can forgive sins but God? It says that Jesus understood what they were thinking. And he says, what's easier for me to say to this man, this paralyzed man, rise, take up your bed and walk, or your sins are forgiven. But then he said this. He said, so that you will know that the Son of Man, the Son of Man is a term that Jesus would use about himself, that you would know that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins. In parentheses, a.k.a. I am God. Okay? So that you know the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins. I say to you, rise, take up your bed and walk. And the Bible says immediately he took up his bed 
and walk. So Jesus makes this claim. And then in John chapter 8, these are in your, in your, um, your manual, by the way. John chapter 8 is not, I don't believe. But in John chapter 8, Jesus makes this statement before the religious leaders that before Abraham, remember the father of faith, Abraham, the great father of faith, uh, he said, before Abraham was, I am. Now, those two words, I am, may just seem like two words, I am, but they mean a whole lot more. So the religious Jewish mind, they're going all the way back, thousands of years, to Exodus. And when God is visiting Moses, and there's a burning bush. You guys have seen the Disney classic, haven't you? Uh, if, if you haven't read it. Um, and there's a burning bush, and God tells Moses, you're going to Egypt, and you're going to set my people free. And Moses says to God, because names mean a whole lot more in those days than they did, they do today. God says to Moses, tell them, I am that I am. And the moment the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the religious Jewish leaders of that time opposed to Jesus, the moment they heard that, they picked up stones to stone him because he was professing to be God. Now, he, he could have been professing to be God, and he wasn't. But that was clearly the profession that was clearly under, understood by them. Direct claims, indirect claims throughout, throughout the scripture. So the question is here, um, he either was or he wasn't who he claimed to be. Now, we spent a little bit of time last week with C.S. Lewis, and C.S. Lewis is so fun. He's so helpful because he said so many great things. Um, so remember, C.S. Lewis was a professor of, professor of ancient literature ancient English literature at both Oxford and Cambridge universities. He was a devout atheist who became a devout follower of Jesus Christ. And if you've never read his book, Mere Christianity, may I commend that book to you, Mere Christianity. If you want a copy, I'll be, if you really want a copy, I'll be happy to get you a copy. But it is his story of going from faith in nothing to faith in Christ. And this, this, is, this is what's called a decision tree analysis that C.S. Lewis came up with. Actually, it's argument whether he came up with it or not, but let's just say he did. So I'd like to say that I came up with this, but that wouldn't be true. So Jesus claimed to be God. So, all right, so he either was or he wasn't, right? It's either false or it's true. Now, if it's false, then he knew it or he didn't know it. Okay? If he knew it, that it was false, then he was a liar. He's just a liar. I mean, what a liar, right? He's constantly saying in the scripture, when you start to, if some of you haven't read the New Testament, you say, I want to read this. You'll read, truly, truly, Jesus would say, truly, truly, I say to you. Jesus said, said, I am the way. We talked about this last week. I am the way, the truth. He's calling himself the truth, but he's just a liar, just lying, misleading, misdirecting people. He's a liar. Not only that, he's a hypocrite. Like I said, he's saying things are the truth, and he's telling a lie, proclaiming himself to be the truth. Not only is he a hypocrite, but he's a demon. He's telling people, if you believe in me, you're, you're going to be with God forever. But if he's lying, 
He's a demon misleading to this day, by the way, billions of people that believe he was who he said he was. And not only that, he's a fool, absolute fool. You know why he's a fool? He died professing his lies. He could have at any moment said, no, time out, time out, April Fool's, just kidding. This is not what I, I, I don't mean this. This was just a big joke, just wanted to see. You know, we're doing a research study here to see how foolish you people would be. I mean, that, that's just not what happened. He was a fool. Liar, hypocrite, demon, fool. That's it, if he knew it. But what if he didn't know it? What if he actually thought he was who he said he was? He was a nutcase. He's a lunatic. Okay? Yeah. But here's the thing that is, is so interesting that, that about his being sincerely deluded. There is no one that stands up to the scrutiny that this man stood up to. The way he stood up to it. There is no lunatic that can do that. And so the argument for liar or lunatic is, is weak at best. And I wanted to look at, in your book, um, is, uh, on the next page, is a, is a quote by, by Lewis. But I, I want to do this. I want to give you the whole quote. All right? I want to give you the whole quote here. So, so looking at that is not going to help you because if you look up on the screen, you'll see more. This is what Lewis said in... Mere Christianity, I believe. He said, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. I guess that would mean he'd be a deviled egg. Um, <laughs> sorry. So he said, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman. Or something worse. He says, you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So fascinating statement by Professor Lewis. So what evidence does support what Jesus alleged about himself? Well, we have many things. We have his teachings, recorded miracles, his very character. Um, we go back into the Hebrew scriptures, what we Gentiles call the Old Testament. And we see the numbers, the dozens and dozens of prophecies fulfilled by this person, Jesus, hundreds and hundreds of years before he came to the planet. All of these evidences changed lives of people. But here's the thing. Christianity rises and falls on just one thing. Just one thing. Just one thing. Did Jesus come out of the tomb alive on that first Easter morning. If not, Christianity is a farce. It is dangerous. It is not to be believed. It is, it is a total demonic lie been foisted upon mankind for millennia. But is he raised from the dead. Paul, the apostle Paul, formerly known as Saul as Tarsus, was 
probably, arguably, the greatest persecutor of the church that we know about. And we, if you, if you read about the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, so you have the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then you have what's called the Acts of the Apostles. The Acts of the Apostles basically shows the beginning of the church. And it, and, and it reaches us in a historic time where this guy, Saul of Tarsus, was persecuting the church. He made it his job, his full-time job, this very religious, zealous Jew made it his job to go after, imprison, and kill Christians. Um, but this guy, Saul, who became Paul, wrote 13 books in the New Testament. He became a devoted follower of Jesus to the point of losing, eventually, his life. This is what Paul had to say about resurrection. Whoops. I'm going to go through this. I'm going to let that slide for now. Sorry. He said this, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Now, I want to go back to this. So it was, if it's false, he was either a, a liar or a lunatic. But if true, see what the Apostle Paul from his experience is saying, he must be Lord. And if that is true, then you and I, if this is true, have a decision to make, don't we? We either, as Lewis said, we must either shut him up, spit at him, or kill him, or fall at his feet and call him Lord. There is no neutral ground, if you will. That's, that's, there's, no, there's no line whereby we stand passive. Even our passivity is a statement of being in a camp of not believing. And so Paul has been so powerfully affected that he says, I am telling you, of all the things I've ever known, this is the most important thing you have to know. That Christ died for our sins. Just like the scripture said, buried raised on the third day. Then he appeared to Cephas, then the 12, then to 500 more, most of whom are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. That, that's vernacular for death, of course. And then he goes on to write this. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. I, this, should, this should cause us some... This should sober us to think about this. It really should. Un un unless we just have this, this kind of this foggy religious thinking where God has something to do with something, but I'm not quite sure what it is. But just in case it does, I'll go to church on Sunday or I'll throw up some prayers. You know, I'll, 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 I'll give the old man a couple of bucks and, you know, just to keep him off my back. Um, if, if this is the truth, I think we would, the more we think about this, argue... This deserves a little more attention, maybe, than what I've given this to date. 
If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. Your faith is useless. More than that, we're found to be liars, false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, and he didn't. Think about that. Christianity rises and falls on whether or not he did rise from the tomb on that third day. And then he says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Your sins aren't forgiven. There was nothing that took place to give you any commendation before God. We're going to talk about a lot about this next week. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. If there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Do you think about that before? You really think about that before. If you really, really thought about that before, it's something just that important. Something that important. And many have tried to explain away his resurrection. Um, what most agree is that the body wasn't there. So if the body's not there, how do you explain away what took place? Well, there are, there are many ways in that takes place. Uh, the women in the morning went to the wrong tomb. It was dark, so they went to the wrong tomb. Well, that doesn't really hold much water because the moment they start proclaiming that Jesus isn't there, then the Roman soldiers that would have still been there would have said, um, lady, you have a poor sense of direction. You need to come over here. This is where the, the body is. Um, or that the disciples stole the body. Okay, so the disciples overtook. They, they, remember, if you're familiar at all with what happened when Judas betrayed Jesus, the disciples scattered. <laughs> um, and so with that, when they scattered, now we're going to believe they got together, they huddled up, and they decided we're going to overtake this Roman, Roman guard of which was at least 12, at least 12 guards. And we're going to overcome them. We're going to move this 2,000-pound stone out of the way. We're going to grab his body. We're going to tuck it away somewhere. And then we're going to announce he's raised from the dead. And best yet, we're all going to die believing, uh, telling people to believe that, knowing it's a lie. I don't think so. Well, what about maybe... Uh, maybe the guards, maybe, maybe the, the Jews stole, the, took the body away. They took the body away because they were afraid the, the disciples were going to come and take the body. So they took the body away. Well, the moment they go to the tomb and see the body isn't there. Uh, yeah, we knew you were going to try that. We knew you were going to try to slip that one past us. So what did they do? We took the body. They would have immediately presented the body. They, they would not have allowed this to go on. Or maybe Jesus didn't really die. Maybe he just swooned. So when they took him off the cross, they put him in the cool tomb. They wrapped his body with a lot of spices and everything else, wrapped his body up. Um, and then he's able to come, untie himself, move the 2,000-pound stone. Again, after crucifixion. Now, we've, we've given you something tonight. You're going to get something in a little bit um, that, I'll, that I'll tell you about in a minute. But he moved the stone. He wrestled free. He took out all the Roman soldiers, and then he appeared to his disciples as the resurrected Christ. I don't think so. Not when you know what the rigors and torture of crucifixion are. No one survives Roman crucifixion. No one. 
So uh, there's a, I think this is here. That, tonight we have for you, if you'd like, um, the AMA, there's a, an article written by several doctors on the physical death of Jesus Christ and what took place in crucifixion. I, I could go through a lot of the details now in terms of the whipping, the scourging, the beatings, the blood loss, uh, the shock that the body goes into, um, and what takes place to the internal organs, particularly the heart upon, at crucifixion. Um, you will find that a fascinating read, and we have a copy of that for each and every one of you. But there were a lot of people that tried to, that actually began to write books to discount Christianity, to completely debunk Christianity. We have a book for you tonight as well, and that's a book by the name of Josh McDowell. Now, if we had all of Josh McDowell's books, Josh McDowell was a total skeptic who was challenged to, okay, you don't believe it? Show us we're wrong. And he ended up becoming probably uh, the most, the, the speaker defending Christianity across the world more than maybe anyone else. And his books would probably like be about this high. But we have a book, kind of the cliff notes of all of Josh McDowell's work called More Than a Carpenter, which talk about some of these things. And what about the Bible? Can I believe it? The resurrection, the person of Jesus, all of these things. We would love for you to have a copy of that book before. Many others. Lewis was one of them. Frank Morrison wrote a great book called Who Moved the Stone? The very first chapter of this English journalist's book to be written was the book that refused to be written. The book he started to write, he could not write. Because when he began to examine the evidence, Frank Morrison realized, oh my, this is true. It completely changed his life. Lee Strobel. So how many of you have seen the movie The Case for Christ? You seen that movie? Uh, if you haven't seen The Case for Christ, it's free on YouTube. Could I encourage you to see this guy who's the chief legal editor of the Chicago Tribune, total atheist, did not believe any of this, set out on a worldwide journalistic investiga investigative tour to debunk Christianity and could not do it. And today he speaks all over the world defending the faith of Christianity. So many have wrestled with the question, who is Jesus? And that question has echoed through the canyons of history from generation to generation, from century to century, and that has echoed down right into this room tonight. Who is Jesus Christ? The question of Jesus and who he is, I think, is the question that if this is true, he would be directing to each and every one of us tonight. And to that, I want to show you um, a scripture from Matthew chapter 16. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Okay, so he's, he's in this town, he's got his disciples around him, and he asks them the question, who do people say that I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, the prophet. And still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But then Jesus turned this question onto them, and he said, 
But what about you? Who do you say that I am? Jesus wasn't just asking a multitude of people for a multitude of answers. He was asking, though corporately, individually, who do you say that I am? In other words, who do you believe that I am? See, what are the ramifications for you and me if Jesus Christ did not stay in the tomb on that what we call Easter morning and was in fact resurrected from the dead, ascended into heaven, and according to the scripture is seated at the right hand of his father. What does the person of Jesus Christ really have to do with my life and the way I live my life, or the way I think about meaning and purpose? What does he have to do about that? Have, have we in this room really critically considered or examined who Jesus is? Have we examined that closely enough? Or have we examined that at all? Um, next week, the topic is, I really want to encourage, just come back next week, okay? Just next week. If you come back next week, that'll be great until I ask you next week to come back the week, next week. Um, but next week, I think, is, is really where we get to see what's all this falderall about Jesus and Christianity. Our topic is, why did Jesus die? I thought I knew. It was much bigger than I had any idea of. And I think you will agree as well. So I want to thank you guys for being here again tonight. We're going to take a quick break, grab some coffee, some water, and let's head back to our tables and enjoy the rest of the evening together. So thank you guys for being here.